This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Caleb Wilkinson is the speaker for this message. Good morning, Grace Church. It's a joy to be with you this morning, Um, but not just this morning. It's been a joy to be with you these last four months. Uh, Thank you for the kindness and love you've shown to my family and me. Um, We've came from what we felt like was a very different place. It was far away, and uh, and you've made us feel really like we're home. So thank you. Thank you. One of our ongoing highlights has been to gather with you on Sunday mornings like this, singing praises to our Lord and to sit under the preaching of you, Craig, and and some of the other pastors as well. It's been life-giving. And all the more then, it's a privilege to come and have the opportunity to open up God's word with you and to preach this morning. We're continuing in Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah 4. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in a seat in front of you. And we're going to be on page 227. Again, Nehemiah 4. Before we go there, let's review a little bit. The monarchy of Judah came crashing down in 587 BC with the sack of Jerusalem and the removal of the people to Babylon. About 50 years after that, they were released to go back to Jerusalem by King Cyrus, and they immediately began working on their temple. That project took them about 20 years, but they finished it. They dedicated it to the Lord, and their next building project was to build the wall around the city. It was lying in ruins, and it left them vulnerable, and it was shameful. It left them vulnerable to their enemies. Now, they began working on the wall, but there was a new king in town, King Artaxerxes, and he forbid them from doing it. He halted the work and he forbid them from doing it. And all of this is found in the companion book of Ezra. So far in Nehemiah, we've seen Nehemiah learning that the wall is still lying in shambles. It's been lying that way for 141 years. So in chapter 1, we see him learning of his people's ongoing shame and vulnerability and crying out to the Lord for God to help them. And he then takes a, a risk. He makes a risky request to the king, the same king that halted the work, King Artaxerxes. He asks the king if he can go back to the city and help his people rebuild their wall. And big surprise, King Artaxerxes doesn't only grant the request, but gives him an endorsement, gives him his supplies, gives him his resources to go back and begin rebuilding the wall. This all happened, the scripture makes clear, because the hand of God was on Nehemiah, and it was God himself initiating this restoration project of the wall. But when Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, the people have a lot of work to do. Last week in chapter 3, we saw them taking it on. We saw a beautiful people, a beautiful picture of all God's people engaged, working side by side to rebuild. It required all the people. It was a big project. It required all of them using their various gifts. And it was gorgeous. God's hand was clearly on them. It was his renewing power that was on display. Now, so far in the story, there's been some rumblings of displeasure. In Nehemiah 2.9, it says that 
when men named Samballat and Tobiah heard the news that that Nehemiah was back, it, deple- it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. But although we get this hint of what's to come, there's no opposition yet. God's hand is on the whole process and everything is going smoothly. But now in chapter 4, we will soon see that this work will be met with serious opposition. And this really shouldn't be a surprise. It actually should be expected. J.I. Packer says, whenever God initiates something for his praise, Satan is always there, trying to keep pace with him, planning ways of spoiling and frustrating the divine project. So now we're caught up and we're ready to look at our passage. But, but first, let's go to the Lord and ask him for his help as we read. Pray with me, please. Well, Lord God, you are our God, and we seek your face with eagerness. We are about to go in your, to you in your word, and we ask you, God, please help us. Some of us are distracted. Some of our eyes are still glazed over. God, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word. And Spirit, would you open up the word to us? Help us understand it. Unpack it for us, Lord, we pray. And don't just help us understand it, Lord. We pray that you would unite our hearts to the truth you're showing us. Give us faith to believe what you're saying. God, we ask that you would show us yourself so that we may see you and savor you, treasure you, and that our hearts may be transformed. God, we know that your word does your work by your spirit and your people for your glory, and that is what we're asking you to do now. Please come, Lord, and glorify yourself and give us the joy of seeing you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So let's go to Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 1. This is the words of God. Now, when Samballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria what are these feeble Jews doing will they restore it for themselves will they sacrifice will they finish up in a day will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Samballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem 
and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, while we're here, look at verse 14 with me. It says, remember the Lord and fight. That's the exhortation. The importance of remembering God is a repeated theme throughout this book of Nehemiah. It's also a repeated theme throughout all of Scripture. And it summarizes our entire text. Now, we're not building a wall like Nehemiah and his people, but there's some big similarities. Ephesians 2 says that God has prepared works, good works for all of us to do, that we should walk in them. And it's almost like a principle that when we try to do something good for God, we will certainly face opposition. Nehemiah wants us to know, the main thing he wants us to know from this text is, when opposition is great, remember, God is greater. Nehemiah shows that remembering the greatness of God is the key response to all opposition. He demonstrates this by showing how remembering God fuels the people's work to overcome three specific types. The difficulty of the work, the defiance against the work, and the deficiency for the work. First, let's look at the difficulty of the work. In verse 1, Sanballat, the seeming leader of the opposition, he comes back into our story. Remember, he was mentioned in chapter 2. He comes back into our story now, and he's angry and greatly enraged. Israel is a challenge to his authority. He's thought to be the governor of Samaria, which is only about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. So clearly threatened, greatly enraged, he responds with jeering. And if you're like me, you might be asking, what is jeering? I don't use that word. Well, jeering is to be mocked. It's to be ridic- It's to ridicule. It's to use sarcastic remarks and taunting language. It's to deride or belittle or scoff. His following questions show what his jeering looked like. Yes, he is asking questions, but he's making a ridiculing statement in the question. Let's, let's look at them one by one, and I'll, I'll summarize their underlying message. So beginning in verse 2, And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Translation, 
See what a poor, incompetent lot they really are? Will they restore it for themselves? This is what he means. The task is beyond their ability. Will they sacrifice? He's saying, are these fanatics going to pray the wall up? That's their only hope. Will they finish up in a day? He's reminding them, hey, don't you realize how long this is going to take you? Don't you realize what you're getting yourselves into? Will they revive the heaps of stone out of the rubbish and burned ones at that? He's, he's saying, don't they know that burned stones crumble? And of course, he, he wants his allies to join in the mockery. And Tobiah adds his scoffing barb to the mix. Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Ouch. Well, like all good trash talk, they're exaggerating. Scholars have pointed out that there was plenty of usable stone in the ruins. It hadn't, the, the stones hadn't been incinerated. They'd been knocked down. And the walls they were building were nine feet wide. So no fox was going to get up on top of it and break it down. Now, these words are not intended to be factual. They are designed to discourage their missiles intended to cause the Jews to second guess the work they are undertaking. It's unclear from the text exactly how they got their propaganda out, but they have indeed reached their target audience. Now, the real threat is not Sanballat or Tobiah or any army yet. They haven't mobilized any armies. Their tactic is not yet physical. It's psychological warfare. The real threat at this point, the obstacle to overcome is the great difficulty of the task before them. Their enemies want to rub their noses in the difficulty to dishearten the Jews so that they'll stop working. They want the Jews to come to the conclusion that their work is impossible, really. Now, these taunts against the Jews are powerful foes. Having your face rubbed in the work, the difficulty of the work, being laughed at for taking it on, being ridiculed for participating in something so difficult it's vain, has the power to undermine the whole project, to undermine everything God is doing. They are being pushed to see the rubble only. They are being pressed against the impossibility. This is the opposition they're facing the difficulty of the work. However, they don't allow themselves to have their faces pressed against the difficulty. Instead, they step back from the ruins and remember that this is God's work. They prayed for help. Verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Now, a little note about this prayer, uh, this prayer to have God turn back their enemies' taunts on their heads. Know this, this, Nehemiah realizes that this mockery is not primarily against them. It's primarily against God. They're mocking God. The, this prayer is not a prayer of revenge as it is about the honor of their God. It's not so much a bloodthirsty prayer as it is, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. 
This is wrong, Lord. Take care of it. Do justice. And notice this. The Jews aren't taking justice into their own hands. They are placing it in the hands that it belongs. They're placing it in God's hands. So though we can learn something from this prayer, this isn't a prayer model for us to follow. We are sitting in a different stage of redemptive history after the cross. The key thing for us to understand about this prayer, to notice about this prayer, is that it brings God back into view. He was nowhere to be found in their enemies mocking. They thought the Jews, Sambal and Tobiah thought the Jews were blind, but they were the ones who were not seeing clearly. God was with his people. It was him who initiated this work, and this reality remained at the center of his people's vision. When opposition was great, they remembered that their God was greater. So verse 6 says, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This is a a quick transition, and Nehemiah is using it to make a point that this prayerful reference to God enabled the people to keep working. It's what gave them a mind to work. Once they remembered the greatness of God, their opposition all of a sudden seemed not so big anymore. Well, what's this mean for us? Maybe, maybe you look at your marriage and it resembles to you the broken down walls of Jerusalem lying in unrecognizable ruins. You know that marriage was initiated by God for his praise, but my marriage, really? No, I don't think so. It's destroyed beyond repair. Maybe... It's the result of your sin, or maybe it's the result of the sin of your spouse, or maybe it's the life, the very difficult life life circumstances you've walked through together. Whatever contributes to the devastation, are you tempted to believe that nothing will ever change? Oh, there's this new marriage ministry opportunity called Reengage, but my marriage is like the burnt stones. Why even start trying to pick them up? It's too difficult. Really, it's impossible. Well, hear what God says to you from his word this morning. He says, I know. I see the devastation, but don't forget to see me, the one who created your marriage. Remember that I am great and awesome. Yes, the rebuilding of your marriage will be difficult, But I am greater. I created the world out of nothing. I raised dead people to life. I don't ask you to see how I would do it. But urge you, remember and trust me and get rebuilding. Well, opposition rarely stops because of one failure. The enemy almost always has more than one trick up his sleeve. And so the next opposition we'll see is the defiance against the work. In verses seven, in verse seven, we see that once Israel's enemies learn about the war continuing, they are not just angry, they are very angry. And the Astrodites have now joined forces. So this means, if you look at the map, the Astrodites are coming from the west. 
they're now being surrounded on all sides. People are coming from the north, the Samaritans, the Arabs are coming from the south, and the Ammonites are coming from the east. So they're completely surrounded by an axis of powers that were very angry. Their own plans at psychological warfare had failed, and this seemed to only add fuel to their rage. Verse 8 says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. The plans have become uglier, haven't they? They've escalated. Israel's Israel's enemies are determined to do whatever it takes to stop the work. If the psychological warfare, if the ridiculing statements don't work, then they will resort to physical force. And of course, this is very discouraging news because they're not just surrounded. The combined forces are bound to be numerically superior and their ability to, count, uh, to launch an effective surprise attack must have been very possible. In verse 12, we learn how the message came to the Jews. Uh, it came to the Jews from other Jews who weren't working on the wall. They were Jews that lived closer to their enemies. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated them to deliver the message, but we do see that they're persistent. Verse 12 says, they told us ten times. Basically, they told us over and over and over and over again. Nehemiah might have been slightly irritated. And this was their basic message. Overwhelming forces are lining up against you and you don't stand a chance. Flee for your lives. The opposition to their work is now the defiance of their superior adversaries. What will Nehemiah and his people do? Verse 9 tells us with simplicity again, almost as if it's without hesitation. And we prayed to our God. Nehemiah did the same thing that he's done from the beginning of the book. When opposition is great, he remembers God is greater. He prayed, and he, and he didn't pray by himself. He has stirred up others to pray with him. Look, look at the verse 9. It says, we prayed. And they didn't just pray. Their prayers moved them to take prudent action. And we prayed to our God and set up a guard of protection against them day and night. Now, this is very important. Listen, to Nehemiah, remembering God doesn't mean that we don't work because God is working instead. Remembering God means we can work with hope because God is working Remembering God is not passive. The, the remembering and working are tied together. They, remembering and working, they're, they're married. They hold hands. They go everywhere together. And this one-two punch is seen three times just in our text alone. It says, we prayed and we kept building. We prayed and we set up guard. And in verse 14, it says, remember God and fight. This is the rhythm of our Christian lives. We face opposition and we remember God and we fight. We, rem- we face opposition and we remember God and we work. They go together because remembering God is the plug that taps into the outlet of the renewing power of God. The power that enlivens and energizes us. If If the awesomeness and greatness of God were like a fierce and raging river, remembering God is not watching the YouTube video or 
looking at a framed picture of a river rafting trip you took a few years ago. No. Remembering God is jumping into the raging river. And when you jump into it, you're swept away because the powerful current takes you. You can't stand still in a raging river. You can't stay stagnant. It moves us to prudent action. Remembering God doesn't excuse us from our work. It empowers it. Remembering God doesn't, uh, it doesn't re- dismiss our responsibility. It gives us motivation and resolve to fulfill it. So this is why when we see Israel remember God, they don't just go to sleep and say, God's got it. We're good. They prayed for help and then they acted as if God will help them. They prayed for a miracle and then they acted that miracle out. They remembered God and watch what they do. They turned Jerusalem into an armed camp around the clock. Verses 10 through 14, it's not a separate event from verse 9. It just gives more details as to what setting up a guard looked like. So after the prayer, Nehemiah halted the work. He armed the people and he arranged the people in family groups to fight in the most exposed, most vulnerable spaces in the wall. Now, Nehemiah is not as emphatic with the details of his work as he is about what empowers such commitment. God was forgotten in their friends' reports to them as well. They were saying, flee, you have no hope, you have no chance, run, return to us. Their reports were void of God. But when Nehemiah and his people oriented themselves to God, seeking him through prayer, they were able to see their trouble differently than the Jews that were begging them to surrender. Nehemiah is stressing something important. It was their unrelenting God-centered perspective that was the engine of their continued efforts. When their opposition was great, they remembered their God was greater. How does this connect to us? It's Christmas time and many of us are traveling home to the homes of relatives. We're traveling to the homes of relatives or we're, we're hosting relatives in our homes. Now, I don't suggest you do either one of these with a relative who might end your life, but... Many of us will face an intense sort of opposition to what God is doing in our lives by being in the mere physical presence of our relatives. This family time is not the most wonderful time of the year for everyone in this room. For some, it's the most dreaded. It's filled with suffering. The best of friends, the closest friends and relatives can make the worst enemies. Some of you know, you know it, that your relative's attitudes will push you to the limits of your patience. Many of us have relatives that are very difficult to love. Loving them will feel like dying. Have relatives done evil to you that is seemingly impossible to forgive? Or maybe something slightly lighter. Will your mom ask you again, why aren't you married yet? Or why aren't you having more kids? Will your dad undermine your career aspirations or your parenting? 
Will your faith be attacked again? Will another Christmas be killed? Will the work you're called to do to be a light and a witness to your family be overwhelmed by the overwhelming forces of your very dysfunctional family dynamics? Hear what God says to you through this text. Don't forget that I am more powerful than your very dysfunctional family dynamics. Remember that I have promised never to take a vacation from you. I will be with you and I am greater than the opposition you're walking into. How different might our Christmas time be if we keep God in constant view? If we remember God, we pray to him, ask him for help, and then act as if he will actually help us. Of course, this might mean for you setting up guard. And I don't exactly know what that looks like in your family, setting up guard. But it might be that you graciously, you plan some gracious strategies to navigate your family. Remembering the greatness of God will help you do this. I can't promise you'll get the result you want, that you'll get the Christmas you want. But remembering God will help you be faithful to your part of the family dynamic. Well, there's a final form of opposition Nehemiah addresses in our text, and it's really related to the other two. Some of us were just feeling it when I was talking about being in our relatives' homes. It's our deficiency for the work. The previous two challenges are present in verses 10 through 14. They haven't gone away just because the people have prayed about them. The work's still difficult, and the the adversaries, the armies, are still lining up against them. But these compound into the related opposition of their lack of resources within. We see this in verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. By ourselves, we'll not be able to rebuild the wall. This is a picture of a man giving way underneath very heavy loads. They are doubting their ability to fulfill the work God has given them to do. They're too weak. They're not sufficient to rise above the difficulty. And on top of that, they have armies lining up to fight against them that even on their best day, when they don't have this kind of work, would, would crush them. That's, that's what their friends keep telling them over and over again. Do you see the problem here? When they look at themselves, they don't see the goods for the job. We are utterly deficient. This is great opposition. And Nehemiah shows that once again, the key to overcoming this opposition, this discouraging, introspective look at themselves is, this, is the same. This time, he doesn't remember God through prayer. He remembers God through exhortation. We can remember God lots of different ways. We, we remember God, one of the primary ways is through prayer. But we remember God when we open up our Bibles. We remember God when we sing individually or when we come here on Sunday mornings and sing together as we just did. We remember God when we read a good Christian author. We also remember God when we're talking with our Christian brother or sister, when we're counseling one another and encouraging one another. One of the best, most powerful ways I I, I get to remember God is I get to remind other people of his greatness. 
Look at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah gets their eyes off themselves. He said, look to God. Look to your, your brothers and your, and your sons and, and your dads even. Um, and the, the way he's, he's designing, he's, he's organizing them is in family groups. This was Israel's traditional way of fighting. It obviously uh, heightens the stakes and encourages us to fight harder when our, when our sons are beside us or our brothers are beside us or our wives are behind us or, 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 or our dads are there. You fight harder when you're not fixated on yourself. But Nehemiah's main thrust isn't the horizontal, it's vertical. It's clearly to remember God, though they are insufficient in the face of their difficult task and defiant adversaries, God is great and awesome. He he encourages them not to be afraid, Not, not because they're so well armed or because they have overestimated their enemy's, you know, might. It, the, he, he tells them this because of who their God is. They are not sufficient. It's true, but their God is, and he will overcome their deficit of resources with his, in, his inexhaustible stores. I am trying to get my sons into Legos right now. And so... This causes some fun. We, we put the Legos all on the table and everything's a mess. And they look at their little instruction manual on how to build a, a, a spaceship or a monster truck or whatnot. And they often get frustrated because they can't put the pieces together right. They lack the tactile coordination and the strength to put the piece on. And I've realized that this might be because I don't really pay attention to the age recommendations on the front of the toy boxes. But either way, they grunt, they complain, they even yell, hopeless and ready to give up. Even while I'm sitting there right beside them, able and willing to help, most of the time able. I tell them, guys, be calm. If you can't do it, hand it to me and say, daddy, please help me. This immediately calms them down when I remind them of this and gives them the motivation to keep working. They, they, they give me the piece. I line up their little finger between the little piece and the big piece and I press and it snaps into place and they look up at me with a smile. When they get frustrated that they don't have the goods to accomplish the task before them, it makes a world of a difference to them to remember that I am beside them, able and ready to help. And I help them. They, they, I'm sitting beside them and they forget. So I remind them, mostly patiently. Hey, hey, Noah, hey, Elijah, I'm here. I'm going to help you. Remember, trust me. It's the same for Nehemiah and his people. When it's clear they are too weak for the task and at the edge of giving up, they need to be reminded to remember God. And once again, our text impresses on us that when opposition is great, remember God is greater. It can be so discouraging, even paralyzing to look at our own strength and resources, can it? You're called to display God's excellence at work, 
but you don't feel particularly innovative, much less excellence. Some of us, some of you here are students. You're getting ready to turn in a final paper or take a final exam. And you're looking at yourself and saying, I don't have the goods. I'm not original. I'm not a good test taker. What's going to happen to my grades? Some of you have had significant and chronic health issues. And you're looking at yourself and saying, I don't have the strength to keep going. I don't have the endurance. I don't have the faith. I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm not seeing what I need to overcome this trial. This can, be fa- this can be an individual challenge. It can also be a corporate challenge. We as a f- church can look at the massive amount of mercy ministry needs in Frisco and be tempted to focus on our lack of resources to make a significant and long-term effect to really change things. Or we can see that the nations are coming to us. Muslim and Hindu peoples are living in our backyards. And when we, when we notice that, we can be so discouraged because we just don't know how to build a bridge to engage them with the gospel. God has the same message for us this morning. Don't fear. Remember me. I am great and awesome. I have promised to help you accomplish the work I've given you to do. So work at your job with excellence. Take the test. Study and take the test. But take the test like I'm going to help you. I will fight for you. I will work for you through your limited efforts. Seek to meet mercy ministry needs. Engage your Muslim or Hindu neighbor. Yes, the opposition is great. You don't have the goods. But remember, son, remember, daughter, I am much greater. I've given you lots of potential application this morning. But here's the thing. We won't do any of this work we're called to do. Many won't work on their marriage because it's just too difficult. My marriage is too bad. It's too ruined and the progress will be too slow. It's futile to think I could try and change things. Or my dysfunctional family dynamics are too big and too complicated for me to actually be a light in. My strategy is to avoid them this Christmas. I just can't get over how weak and insufficient I am for this task before me at work, at school, in our community. What depths of inadequacy we have. No, we won't do any of these things because the opposition is so great that it obstructs our view of God. We so easily forget him. We see people and problems and the gulf of our inadequacy as really, really big. And we see God as really, really small. We won't do any of this unless we remember that God is even greater and more awesome than Nehemiah and his people ever could know. And we don't just need to remember, we need new hearts that can't forget. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. 
we have a huge advantage over Nehemiah and his builders. Nehemiah and the workers knew that God would help them build because God's hand was on them. They knew his awesomeness and his greatness because he had defeated even larger enemies than these before. He had brought them through the Exodus and taken care of the Egyptian army. And now he gave Nehemiah favor with the king. So they worked hard to build this place of God so that they could enjoy his presence once again. But listen, listen, this is, this is maybe the most important thing for you to hear this morning. In our story, we're not the builders. Jesus is. He is the one who was despised, mocked, and jeered, who wore a crown of thorns. It was him whose work was called foolish. His enemy didn't just threaten him with death, but actually pierced his hand, spilled his blood, and killed him. It was him whose soul was very sorrowful, even to death. He whose flesh was fragile, who sweated blood, and who cried out in weakness, Let this cup pass from me. And it is him who said, not my will be, not my will, but yours be done. He who, remembering God was greater than death, marched into certain death. Jesus is the real people of God working in our story. We're not called to be the hero. Jesus is. He is the one who has always remembered that God the Father was greater than any of his great opposition, greater than Satan, greater than sin, greater than even death. He is the one who worked to build the new place of God for God's people to enjoy God's presence. Well, who are we then? Who are we in this story We're the stones who've been raised up out of the ashes. We're the city being built by God for his praise that he would indwell us. We're the place of God that he has defended with his blood and will continue to defend. And we're the people in the text, the brothers, the sons, the daughters and wives, the home, Jesus' home, that motivated him to fight This work is already done. He has fought victoriously, and we are the full beneficiaries of his triumph. For us to remember God's greatness is to remember the gospel, and the gospel changes our hearts. We see the work Jesus already accomplished. We trust it, and our hearts are transformed. They are hearts that remember, and they're empowered to do the work we're called to do because Jesus has done his work already. We don't fight for a place to enjoy God's presence like Nehemiah and his people did. We fight from it. We work with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The presence of God, the presence of God is in us, lives inside of us. And sort of like I act with my kids when they're playing Legos, he's here reminding us over and over again of the greatness God has shown us through the cross. He's telling us now, when opposition is great, remember, God is greater. Let's pray. 
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.